is it, right? Our last regular episode of the year. After this, we're doing year-end stuff. Yep, and I brought a jingle bell. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's hard to believe. I guess we'll have to top off the special end-of-the-year episode next week with whatever the news is. And the week after that is our special end-of-the-decade, even though it's not really the end-of-the-decade episode. So this is the last regular one of 2019. All right, well, we're going out with a bang, so let's get and going. A, and a bell. And a bell. <laughs> Welcome to this year's final regular episode of This Week in the CLE, the podcast analysis of the news by the most talented news team in Northeast Ohio, the reporters and editors at Cleveland.com. We thank you for listening to this podcast since we began it some 30 plus episodes ago. It was an experiment and we're never sure how long to run with an experiment. We get pretty good feedback from you though, so we're still going strong. Keep that feedback coming. We care about getting this right, which is why I host this thing myself. I'm Chris Quinn, editor at Cleveland.com, and I'm happy to say I'm here once again with co-host Laura Johnston, who has made putting this podcast together this year a whole lot easier. What do you think, Laura? Have you had some fun? Do it. Yeah, definitely. I'm happy to take a break to banter with newsroom folks anytime I can, and it guarantees that I will know all the big news on Cleveland.com every week. I think my favorite part of this episode is going to come at the tail end of it when we talk with Pete Krause. He wrote my favorite story of the past month, the rollicking tale of the Twinsburg guy who set the new record for the cannonball run. That's the not-quite-legal coast-to-coast auto run. This guy's team averaged 103 miles per hour across America. What are you looking forward to? I'm still going strong on the plastic bag ban, which Mary Kilpatrick went to Orange Village to talk to shoppers about. But honestly, right now at work, Mary and I are mired in recapping the news of the last 10 years in a special year on series. So I'm looking forward to giving listeners a sneak peek of that. I'm also glad we'll be talking about the placement of the police headquarters on Opportunity Corridor. The announcement of that decision a month ago raised a lot of legitimate questions that the city just wasn't answering. And then the mayor and his team came over to our office and answered them. It turns out the decision was based on a lot of research and smart thinking. Who knew? Also, we're not getting into a deep discussion about it, but I thought your story on the lack of icebreakers in the Great Lakes was ominous. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. The U.S. Coast Guard at one point had 19 ice-breaking boats. They call them cutters, and now they're down to nine. Uh, Canada has two, but two of the U.S. ones, the Nia Bay and the Morrow Bay, are in Cleveland. That's where they're docked, and they travel all over the lower Great Lakes to bust up ice and keep shipping channels clear, even when the rest of the lakes freeze. The Lake Carriers Association, which represents the freighter companies, thinks the Coast Guard is not doing enough, and they blame poor icebreaking for millions of dollars in lost productivity when boats get stuck. The Coast Guard, though, says they're doing their best with the resources they have, just like everybody else. So we'll see how rough a winter we're going to get, but we've got a whole bunch of people rolling through this episode today, so let's get started. And just like that, here comes Courtney. Welcome to the podcast, Courtney Astolfi. Hello, hello. Courtney, your job is covering Cuyahoga County government, but you did double duty here with the police headquarters with Bob Higgs burning up some unused vacation time. So you handled the visit to our office by the Cleveland mayor, Frank Jackson, the police chief, and some others to talk about that police headquarters. Uh, We didn't think it was going to be a big story, but it ended up being the big story. So let me quickly recap why they were here. Jackson announced a month ago that the police headquarters, which almost went into the very building in which we now sit until that deal fell apart, would be built outside of downtown along Opportunity Corridor. That's the $100 million plus a mile, three-mile road being built to link Interstate 490 to University Circle. And it was sold as a way to bring economic development to long, fallow land. When Jackson announced he would put the police headquarters there, he didn't say anything about how it would fit into that economic development plan, and that resulted in three weeks of public questioning about the wisdom of the decision, including several times on this podcast. But in the 10 minutes at the top of his visit with us, Jackson laid out with crystal clarity why this decision is all about economic development. So let's unpack all that. First, they told us as things stood, and this was completely new information, economic development was not going to happen along the corridor. Why not? Yeah, this was the key part. So the city met with, you know, a lot of the big developers who would be putting down routes along that corridor and asked why they weren't. And they gave two primary answers. One, nobody wanted to be first. Nobody wanted to jump in first here. And number two, they were worried about safety. So... Those two things, you put a police headquarters there and you start to address those developer concerns. How exactly does that address it? 
chief of police and Mayor Frank Jackson basically said that this was going to be an open campus kind of concept. Police will be milling about. It won't be won't be like a fortress like the downtown Justice Center in is, you know, cops come in, park into the garage. They're all kind of contained within right. that building. Right. This, the way they describe it, is going to be an open complex that's just nestled in and, and part of the community. Yeah, let, let's talk about that campus thing for a moment. I got the feeling that Jackson had heard what we said on this podcast about the giant juvenile justice center built in the same neighborhood a decade ago and how it did absolutely nothing for economic development. I mean, I don't even think there's a coffee shop that serves it. And I got that feeling because when Jackson brought up that point himself, he was looking me straight in the eye. Uh, as he did, though, he said this is very different for for a bunch of reasons that were deliberate. One is the Juvenile Justice Center is built like a fortress, plopped down in the neighborhood. It's, it towers over the neighborhood. You can't go inside. I mean, he made the remark, the only time people in the neighborhood can go inside is to visit the children that are locked up in there. So if you think about that gigantically tall and forbidding building, how, how is this campus thing different? They mentioned something about running paths and bike paths, but, but even though we don't see pictures yet, how, what is the feel of this as compared to that you know, very ugly-looking Justice Center? Yeah, so Police Chief Williams said like the hope was going to be to have different community amenities, perhaps, uh, included in this police campus, and that could be an outpost of the municipal court, that could be other meeting rooms for different kinds of, you know, police adjacent groups. There are going to be a lot of civilians that work there. It's not just all police officers. So he kind of, he sees it as a, as a multi-use kind of like campus. Like a perhaps. community, not a community center, but have some of those aspects. When then. it was, when it was going to be in this building, they were very attracted to the big community room we have here. And we've hosted things like the planning session for Cleveland Rising. It was a great space, and it sounds like they want more of the same in the new campus. That's the hope, and they're not tied to that, I don't think, but that's going to, I think, be the goal as they move forward in the process. So the other part, he said the city's quietly been toiling away to make sure that the land around the the new police headquarters would be developed, and how would that happen? So the city said that they've, you know, acquired perhaps a little more than 70 acres right around, you know, the area where the campus will be. We were told that there's going to be a push to kind of to make sure that development in and around the police headquarters, the city can dictate some of the aesthetics there mm-hmm. and and kind of push it to have that continued open community welcoming feel. So they won't, those buildings wouldn't be fortresses either. What I, what I thought was interesting about the session is how Jackson noted that he and his staff had every question that we had about this plan and set out to answer them before making the announcement. And they had all the answers. I mean, this is what you really kind of hope government does, right? That they look at it from every angle to come up with a logical and sensible plan. Um, they lacked only two answers. One was why in the hell they didn't say all this stuff when they made the announcement. I'm still amazed that for three weeks, lots of people, not just us, were saying, wait, 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 this wasn't what this road was supposed to be about. If they had held a press conference and laid this out as succinctly as he did with us, this would have gone down much better, I suspect. They had said something about they didn't want to get ahead of council, but he's the mayor. This is his proposal addressing people directly especially when you've done the homework i get it when you haven't done the homework and you don't have answers but they had them all so you said there's two questions you answered one of them said they did what was the second unanswered question will this work there's no precedent it all makes sense they have to build the hq somewhere the public has invested heavily in opportunity corridors so they're solving two problems with one solution but will it work will other developers follow only time will tell I have to say I was impressed by the great deal of thought and research that went into it. I came away thinking it's a pretty good idea. Well, Courtney, speaking of investing, on your own beat, you had a story about how Cuyahoga County wants us to invest in those who are down and out. We've talked about this health and human services issue on the podcast before, but now it seems it's official. The proposed tax increase for health and human services is headed to the March ballot. Council approved it on Tuesday, and voters will weigh in on whether they want to pay what will be a total of $35 million above and beyond the current health and human service levies going forward to fund a bunch of these programs. 
You've got a lot of experience uh, covering tax in- increases over the years. Generally, voters don't like them. They're much more likely to renew an existing tax and to increase it. So how does the county plan to overcome that kind of human tendency? Yeah, so from here on out, they'll be working on the campaign and trying to get voters on board that way. And also, Metro Health CEO, Dr. Ekram Boutros, I think he told you, Chris, he wants to come in and talk about the need for this tax increase. Yeah, I mean, I think this what this is about, and we've talked about this previously, is the county hurt their cause in the way they announced this. As you well know, Courtney, they refused to lay out how they were going to spend the money, even though we spent two weeks saying, when you announce this, we expect to know how you're going to spend the money. People I talked to outside of county government were ticked off because they do believe this money is necessary, that it will go to very important causes, but they worry that people immediately made up their minds. Oh, the county's not exploiting how it's going to spend the money? Well, I'm not going to give them the money. Getting them to change those minds might not be easy. So Akram reached out and said, hey, I'd like to come in and talk to the Ed Board uh, about why this is important to to do and i I think we're going to hear from a bunch of people in the mental health sphere and elsewhere saying that yeah forget how badly the county screwed this up this money is important but you know as laura pointed out it's an increase and people are very skeptical of increases well clearly the city and county should take our advice and just tell everything the first time and not wait us for weeks where we try to question what their motives are uh, but speaking of transparency, Courtney, you had an interesting story with quotes from a county official who lost her job this week. She was nothing if not uh, open with you. And we don't usually get such salty language. So what is going on there? Yeah. So the county's budget director was fired. Um, and she, when I reached out to her for comment, she's been at the county for most of Budish's administration. And, and even before, right? I mean, we're talking she's gone back and forth. Yeah, her in file county. says she was fired, but it also says she's resigned. It's a weird But one. dating back to the commissioners, correct? Yeah. She reached out to me later. There was a letter in her personnel file in 2007 saying that she was resigning. She reached out to me later this this week and said that that was not a resignation. That was a promotion. So I'm going to look into and see what that huh. is. But the second time, there was a letter when, when she left under the Fitzgerald administration there was a letter that said um, she she went AWOL, essentially. She went on some program overseas, and there was some dispute over her not being in her position for okay, several but, weeks. But in the, in the communication she had with you, she kind of made clear that, that she's got a personality that might not mesh. I mean, she said she knows where the bodies are buried, and she might sue the bleep out of them. Not... Not the normal kind. Wait, did of... she actually say bleep? Or are we bleeping no, I'm ourselves? Bleeping ourselves. <laughs> no, she she used the word you think she used. Yeah, that was colorful language. Um, you could tell she was reacting very emotionally to what had just happened to her. She she was referring essentially to herself as like a whistleblower here, saying that she just talked to Chief of Staff Bill Mason about some retaliatory behavior against her. I'm going to be digging into this in the coming days and seeing what this is all about. But knows, knowing where all the bodies are buried, she 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 talked about how she let administrators know about problems in the jail before people started dying. So those are some wild... Yeah, I'd want to see These are big claims here. So we're going to yeah. have to dig in and, and see what this actually means. I mean, if, she, if there is something to show that she did that, that would be huge news that a, a warning like that was was ignored. But you'll want to see proof that that, that actually happened. Right, and like her emails were subpoenaed as part of this ongoing probe into the jail and other things in the administration. So I don't, we don't quite know what her her role is in all of this and does the county give a reason for their firing like what's the official um they gave kind of the standard line that's given out which is we decided to go in a different direction (laughs) it's not you it's me yeah (laughs) but like i asked the communications chief i was like is was there any recent discipline or anything filed against keenan and she said well firing is discipline so (laughs) we got a lot of stuff to still sort through here about yeah that was a late breaking story so there'll be more on that one right (laughs) yeah uh, but before you go, Chris and I wanted to say thank you for appearing on this podcast throughout the year. Your thoughts and analyses are what makes this work. So the inside scoop. Thank you. Well, thank you. And thanks to all our listeners for tuning in.
time for a conversation with Jane Cahoon. Welcome, Jane. Thanks, you guys. Where to start? You have so much on your plate and so much to talk about today. So how about we go with one of our favorite state house politicians to discuss, Dave Yost. The attorney general has lost yet another bid to have a say on how opioid settlement money gets distributed and spent in Ohio. This is what, his third whiff on this? I think you're about right on those whiffs. Uh, he... He's whiffed so much. He could be a Cleveland sports <laughs> franchise. He's 0 for 3. <laughs> oh, that's a great line. He he tried to intervene in the court case to, to halt the opioid trial. He was not successful with that. He tried through the legislature. He backed a, a bill that was being drafted that would give him sole authority over these cases. And then... Lastly, he he's tried for this constitutional amendment. He's floated this idea that would dictate how the opioid money is distributed. And we learned this week from House leaders that they're not going to take this up before the deadline of December 18th to get it on the March ballot. So... No one's Dad. interested in doing what he wants to do. The mayors aren't. The counties aren't. The legislature's not. What really blew me away, he talked to our editorial board by phone about this the other day. And what struck me is he said multiple times, you were there, Jane, yep. multiple times that his job in this sphere is to go get the money, not to decide how to spend it. Yet he won't let go of this <laughs> grab at trying to control the spending. And the other thing is, given his kind of over-the-top criminal investigation in Cuyahoga County, which we've talked about in the past, I mean, it just keeps going on and on and on, and it doesn't seem like there's any there there. He's There are people that believe he's really not a friend to Democratic areas, that he's a serious Republican and, and he's hammering away at urban centers that are largely Democratic. And there's a reason that the mayors and elected county leaders are dead set against letting this guy get near the cash. There's a history in Columbus of sucking money out of urban areas and spreading it in Republican areas. Well, he certainly has faced a lot of pushback from the leaders of Cuyahoga and Summit counties, for sure. They've reacted really strongly to this. But interestingly, the governor, a Republican, has also said, eh, this is not a good idea. Yeah, there's some... There's some uh, there, there appears to be a little bit of a conflict between the governor, the former attorney general, and Yost, the current attorney general. So Cuyahoga County and Summit County settled um, lawsuits earlier this year, but whatever Yost is talking about would not have taken the money that we already got, correct? Correct. Those settlements would be safe, but I think they're worried about the next round, um, the next trial that's coming up. Uh, where they're suing year, the far yeah this is with right. the pharmacies they got right. a trial coming up next fall right to be fair the the ultimate point that Yost keeps making is that we should have safeguards against elect elected officials squandering this money he believes as many do that if you don't have the guardrails to ensure that the money is spent on opioid addiction and and treatment that they'll do what they did with the cigarette money which is just shove it into the budget and spend it on any pet projects they want but he's not a legislator. He's the prosecutor. <laughs> if he wants to be the guy putting in the guardrails, he should be running for a different office. And like I said earlier, Democrats don't trust him. Right. I Listen, I lived through those budgets where they, they took that tobacco settlement money and plugged budget holes with it. And the people, the anti-smoking people were like, what are you doing? You know, this... It was totally against the purpose of that settlement money. So I, I can see that for sure. But, you know, maybe this will be the end of his efforts. Moving on, our Washington, D.C. reporter, Sabrina Eaton, has a fascinating story, actually tons of fascinating stories this week, but about <laughs> a two-continent custody battle that will be heard by the U.S. Supreme Court. It pits a Painesville mother against her ex-husband who lives in Italy. And as of now, the child is with the dad in Italy. So what is the dispute? Well, she left Italy with the child when the child was barely eight weeks old, as soon as she could get a passport for her, because she said, because of abuse. And he accused her of child abduction under what's called the Hague Convention uh, on Child Abduction. And she's lost in two federal courts at the district court level in Cleveland and at the federal appeals court level. So now it's before the U.S. Supreme Court, which is taking up the question of how do you determine the habitual resident of a child? 
in this case, a newborn. Well, she's not newborn. Anymore. Well, she's not a newborn anymore. She's like four years old or something like that. So why does the U.S. Supreme Court get to make that call? This kid is in Italy. Why wouldn't an Italian court have jurisdiction or some multinational court of some kind? I mean, if I'm the dad living in Italy and the U.S. Supreme Court says, hey, we've decided she gets the kid in the U.S., why would I listen? I'm not beholden <laughs> to the Supreme Court of the United States. Well, it's interesting. The oral arguments were heard on Wednesday in, in Washington, D.C., and one of the lawyers brought that up. I believe the lawyer for the husband said he didn't think Italian authorities would even honor this. And the other lawyer said, no, 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 that, you know, we have these mul- this multinational treaty and he believes they would honor it. So, so the multinational knows. treaty puts the U.S. Supreme Court in charge, even <laughs> though no, the kid the kid was born in Italy. The kid is in Italy. Right. Well, I, 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 that just doesn't make sense to me. I would have thought there'd be some international thing that, that is set up. I mean, I mean, she's got home court advantage, man. I mean, if you well, think- she does, but she's also lost into United States courts. So. Who knows? So is she here now or is she living in Italy near her daughter? Well, she she came to the U.S. for the arguments. We, okay. uh, Sabrina uh, Eaton, our reporter, saw her there. and But she when they moved the child back to Italy, when the child was ordered back to Italy, she had to go back there in order to see her child. And her attorney says... She there are very strict visitation requirements on her, so she's not getting an adequate chance to see her child. This is a really sad story. The mom says she was a victim of domestic violence, and that's when she left. Um, does the dad dispute it, and is that going to play a role in this case? But Or is it possible the abuse doesn't matter to the legal issues because the case is more procedural? I think they are just focusing on the legal issues. The abuse allegations are in dispute what they're really trying to decide is how does a court determine a child's habitual residence? And there was actually a semi-light moment where Chief Justice John Roberts said, well, an, eight, an eight-week-old baby, let's see, they don't really have any habits. Well, maybe a couple of habits, but, you know, <laughs> I feel like so. this is like a lifetime movie waiting to happen, you know? Yeah, it's it, it really is a fascinating case. They will expect a decision probably sometime in June. I don't know. If you think about it, it's, it, it put the abuse aside because it's not clear and it sounds like it's not important. If you're the dad and you've had this kid and eight weeks later the mom is saying, yeah, I want to take my take the kid to another country. And that's a that, that's tough. I mean, well, I, how do their you... relationship apparently was troubled. And she said she left as soon as she could. She she would have left sooner, but she had to get the kid a passport. I guess I guess she should have gone like two months before when she was pregnant, right? Like, can't fly, take a boat. I don't know. There's no good answer here. No, there isn't. Yeah, you need the wisdom of Solomon on this one. Yes. Okay, here's one that I fear soon will apply to how cops deal with me. There's a move afoot to require that police get trained to do a better job dealing with people suffering from dementia. Yes, this is a bipartisan bill that would require training for police to better identify and interact with people with dementia and connect them with resources and also identify when people might be abused. So we we know in Cleveland, part of our big consent decree with the police pushed more training for dealing with the mentally ill, and that followed some high-profile cases which police did nothing to de-escalate the situation. Does this bill follow any high-profile problems between police and people with dementia? No, the the people pushing it say there isn't any one incident that led to this. But the fact is, people over 65 soon are going to outnumber people under 18. And there are more people who are choosing to try to keep their loved ones at home. And so there are bound to be more incidents where people wander off and they need the police to find them. And so these interactions are presumably going to occur more frequently. I'm all about it. I mean, if we can make sure that these people are safe and cared for, then it's only like two hours of training, right? It's like not a ton. So it sounds like a good idea. Right, right. Um, but we've got a couple of stories to talk about involving Governor Governor Mike DeWine. He suddenly got a big interest in highway rest stops and a vision is the opposite of his predecessor, John Kasich. Where Kasich wanted to privatize the places and sell naming rights, DeWine wants like 
to be comforting chalets that show pride in the state. So what's that about? Yes, these would be, they, they've got some, a, a couple of rest areas are undergoing renovation right now, and they want to do four more, put in like dog parks and native grasses and have a playlist of music uh, by Ohio musicians, at, which, by the way, was chosen by Jack Mark, Marchbanks, the ODOT director, who happens to be a musician and hosts a jazz radio show. Fascinating tidbit. Yeah, and and they want that they want them to be really to show off Ohio, like uh, displays on Neil Armstrong and other. You had to correct me when, when I first read the story because I was like, the turnpikes just got redone, and you're like, these are not about the turnpikes. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. But yeah, this, these are on interstates. But it's an odd thing to get focused on. I mean, let's face it: when when you're on the highway, you stop at a rest area for the restrooms, which they're saying it's not just for the restrooms, but it is. You're trying to get from place A to place B. On the turnpike, people are going on long trips, so those rest areas have food places and all sorts of extra amenities gas. and gas stations, but, you know, but, which are very nice. But, but for the highway, th- these things are there for you to stop and, and relieve yourself. So why put in a bunch of stuff <laughs> that, that most people are never going to stop at, and who's paying for all this? Well... To answer that question, they have not worked out the cost even, so so we don't know that. But, Chris, once again, you're questioning the governor's motives on something. And, uh, listen, he he wants, he's proud of Ohio. He wants to show it off. He wants the rest areas. He, he was uh, nudging Jack Marchbanks saying, we're going to have the best rest areas in the country, right? And he, he's proud of Ohio. He wants to show it off. And he wants <laughs> the, the travelers to goal, have the best a rest safe areas. and comfortable place. I so can't wait there for you have it. That magazine ranking to come out. Best <laughs> rest areas in America. Honestly, it, it, you know, I wonder how many people even use these anymore. I mean, we all, if you have to get off the highway to get your gas and your, your food. But um, this isn't coming from the gas tax, is it? I mean, that hasn't been. They just yeah, raised it, that. It, I'd hate I to know. see that. I mean, that. I think is more intended to fix our broken roads. But as I said, the financing for this hasn't been worked out. All right. Uh, it, it seems like a rare miss. I'm not sure why he would waste time on this with school funding broken and other matters pressing. Speaking of which, DeWine is worried that schools are not spending some extra money he sent their way in the budget that he signed over the summer. He put a whopping amount together to pay for counseling and after-school care and other services that would help at-risk kids from failing. So what, why isn't that money all being spent? <laughs> yes, it's $675 million in the, in the two-year budget. And perhaps the keywords there are two-year budget because school leaders see that, okay, that's only in there for two years. No one knows what's going to happen in another two years. So apparently they've been telling the governor that they're a little wary about this, and he wants to send a strong signal to them that he is going to keep fighting for this money. So what is his strong signal? Like, how is he going to let them know He's going to send a letter to the superintendents telling them that this is a big priority of his and he would even like to expand it it seems to me the best way to keep the money flowing for these superintendents and principals would be to show success with it i mean if they won't even try they're it's a self-fulfilling prophecy i kind of like to know who they are because in my experience when you put money into the hands of public officials <laughs> they they don't <laughs> decline to spend it and i just want is how big a problem is this you know that no one said they declined to spend it I think they they have just expressed a few reservations. I don't think it's going to stop them from spending the money. So Jane, Rich Exner had another fascinating story about money that you handled about home sales in the winter. And if people are paying attention, they could save a whole lot of that money. Uh, can you talk about that? Yeah, Rich looked at home sales during the winter months versus during the, the summer months. And it was pretty eye-opening. I mean, I think you'd commonly believe more people are moving in the good weather but this is like tens of thousands of dollars difference uh he looked over five years and homes in the Cuyahoga County suburbs as I said tens of thousands of dollars difference I think it ranged from 14 to 25 percent 
lower prices during the winter. The big question is why? Is it that demand is higher in warm months, more people are out looking, it's between school years, so this just comes down to a basic supply and demand issue? Or, you know, do do people with expensive homes, are they more likely to put them in the market in the warm weather? Does, does Rich have any insight into well, this? Well, he, he talked to a couple of realtors. The fact is, if you're making a voluntary move, you know, nobody wants to move during the ice and snow. You'd rather move when the weather is nice. That's pretty much what it comes down to. So is it is it that there's a, it's the, it's supply and demand. People are out looking right. to do this in the summer, so prices are higher. Right. Well, and these are based on closing dates, right? So that's normally about a month after you make an offer. So we're talking about offers from mid-November to mid-February. I got to tell you, when I was house shopping four years ago, we looked through the entire winter. We put in four offers that we got beat out on, and there was just not as much for sale. So... Good luck to anyone in, who's in the market now, and I hope you get a great deal. But we should say that Laura ended up with a house that was featured just a week ago in the uh, home yeah. tour. I ended up with the right house. Her world-class bathroom. Hundreds of people walking through her house last weekend marveling at her decorating sensibilities. I should decorate this office. All right. Let's, let's do one more just because I want to use the word deep fakes. We have a congressman from our area who's worried about deep fakes. And what we are talking about is those very realistic looking photos and videos of people doing things that they never did. The juxtaposition of a celebrity's face on a naked body, for example, or my face on the body of a smart person for another. <laughs> the technology for doing this has become pretty accessible. And the fear is that it will be used to mislead American voters and influence elections. Well, I like your description of deep fakes. <laughs> he's all about self-deprecatory stuff today. I mean, first he's got dementia, now he's posing yeah. as a dumb person. We love it. That way we don't have to make fun of him. <laughs> okay, answer the question. Okay. So Anthony Gonzalez, a, who's been pretty successful as a, a freshman congressman, he's a Republican, has actually gotten this bill through the House this week, and it would support federal research into identifying deep fakes and how people interact with them. So, but it's not a law to prohibit deep fakes. It's more about figuring out how to, you know, identify them and help people look and understand them. Correct. I, I think he just wants to make sure that, that we're keeping up with the sinister people who put these things out there, that we have a way to label them and call them out. Right, I lied. I should have said, let's do two more. So here's the last one. <laughs> uh, the Jack Casino in Cleveland had a milestone of sorts this week when it comes to revenue. So what was that? So in November, for the first time in three years, the Jack Cleveland Casino topped the Columbus Casino in revenue, just under $19 million. And also the Northfield Park Racino continued to be the number one racino. You know, I saw Rich Exner post this story. I was trying to think, what is it about the November that would have had people going in? And I, I, I couldn't come up with anything. We didn't have any huge events. I mean, we had Browns games, but we really didn't have anything huge that would bring crowds downtown. Thanksgiving was really late in the month, so I don't yeah. know. But that would have affected Columbus. But Who knows? I don't gamble. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for appearing on the podcast, Jane. I'm certain we'll be talking to you next week for our year-end episode. Can't wait. Welcome to the podcast, criminal justice editor Chris Wernowski. Hey, guys. You handled a couple of stories about controversial judges this week. Let's st start with former Judge Berge. He did things Burge. as a... Burge. Okay. <laughs> there we go. He did things as a judge that so crossed the line that he lost his law license, but now he has it back. Let's start with why he lost that license to begin with. There, there were a couple of reasons why he lost his license. Um, the the board that sort of oversees judicial conduct noted that um, he was actually convicted of of not disclosing that he was renting property to attorneys that appeared before him in his courtroom. And that's a big ethical no-no <laughs> in the legal community. Understandably. And, that was a misdemeanor, right? Right. Yeah. But then they also found some issues with the way that he sort of handled his courtroom specifically, most notably, I think, a case involving a sexual assault of a 14-year-old girl where he essentially dismissed a rape charge against the guy claiming that he did not penetrate her deep enough for it to be considered 
rape and so yeah it is such a awful case and so um the guy ended up getting convicted on like a lesser charge but the court found that he just did not follow any like any proper procedure in in reaching that conclusion and 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 the the board sort of took his i don't know what you would call it his sort of legal judgment into question so they suspended him for a a year they, he stepped down as judge. He, he's no longer a judge in that county. But then the, the, the board got rid of his, basically said you can't practice law for a year. Wow. So I completely understand why he lost his law, law license. Why did he get it back? Well, under the terms of, of, of the opinion that was handed down by the Supreme Court, they said that if he didn't get in any additional trouble in in six months, they would suspend six months of his uh, his punishment. So he is now officially allowed to start practicing law again. I don't know that if he'll, I don't know if that he'll ever seek the judgeship again, but, mm. um, my guess is that there's nothing that would stop him from doing that. The other judge we're talking about is Dan Gall, who did not come across very well at all in the serial podcast that focused on the Cuyahoga County justice system. He did not come across well in a recent ruling on one of his cases either, huh? Yeah, he uh, Judge Gall continues to sort of step in it a little, a little bit, and uh, and and an appeals court basically slapped a case back down and 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 said no, you you have erred again, Judge Gall. And it and the, the but the error was he was questioning, I guess, a, a an accused person like he was a prosecutor. I mean, ask him dozens and dozens of questions, and the judges said it, it almost seemed like he was an arm of the prosecution. Right, and and over the objection of defense attorneys, and, and I mean, they said he asked something like 80, 83 questions or something like that. I mean, they're like a staggering amount of questions of this defendant, and of course he was claiming and the prosecutors were claiming that the defense opened up the, the you know, sort of, it gave a window for the judge to do that, but the appeals court has basically said, no, uh, you, you shouldn't have done that. And so I guess the guy has to get retried. I, I love watching all the gall things. It's an interesting uh, courtroom. Well, he just got reelected, so he's going to be around a while. Yeah, he's a, he's a, yeah, I mean, his, if people aren't familiar with what happened during the, the, the serial thing and, and sort of his history, he, he has a history of saying some like controversial things. I think he's called, you know, some black defendants things like brother in court. He like lectures them about and, the welfare state. Yeah, and so he has, you know, he's a very sort of I don't know, like fire and brimstone kind of judge and for the lack of a better word. I, and 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 so, you know, he he gets a lot of criticism, but I don't know if people who vote really seem to care so well, they're he, like oh i recognize his name i'm gonna vote for him yeah he was the guy that was on that, <laughs> that, that <laughs> podcast. he's famous okay so we also had the conclusion of a case in federal court about a couple that met began dating and soon became conspiring to commit mass murder at a toledo bar both of them have pleaded guilty and been sent to prison to hear prosecutors tell it this was pretty crazy as they dated they became indoctrinated into communities that glorify mass killings and the woman in the case even corresponded with dylan roof the guy who killed worshipers in a south carolina church years ago yeah stay in school kids no there it's a no this is this was a really like I remember when this when this indictment came out and, and you know, there there's a lot of this that happens where you you sometimes you scratch your head and go, you know, is the is the government taking is it real? Is, is it right. real? And, and there's this, you know, it's 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 this weird line that law enforcement sort of has to ride over whether taking online threats and things like that. Serious. This was different. Like this was. They vacationed in Columbine and visited the school. They, I mean, she was writing letters to a guy who shot up a black church in in South the South, Carolina. and 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 so this this appeared to reach a level of of something that the government d- decided it needed to take serious because the the threats they were making, the 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 language that they were using, the. Everything was just kind of bone chilling. Well, and they had the guns, the ammo, the bomb making equipment. They also had a plan to tell anyone who caught them that they were just role playing. And when they were caught, they did that, right? Yes, and and I don't know that the government bought that. So, um, I I just look if that's role playing, that's a it's it's a, a very twisted type of role playing, and I don't know what kind of defense they thought that might be against what they were doing and what we were seeing. It's it's 
I mean, it's a, it's kind of a scary time to be, you know, hanging out on the any corner of the internet because you know there are people like this everywhere now. And, and you got to give credit to the people that found the journal, got it to the FBI. I mean, the FBI can pretty much say they think they stopped a a mass killing, a tragedy in Toledo. Yeah, that would have yeah that would have been awful. Wow. All right. Let's talk privacy. U.S. Attorney Justin Herdman wrote an op-ed for Cleveland.com this week calling for technology companies to help criminal investigators get through the encryption that is locking up many phones and devices. He argues that encryption is protecting criminals, and reporter Eric Heisig talked to Herdman about it. What are the basics of his argument? His basics of the argument are are old tried and true law enforcement <laughs> arguments. I mean, these are, look, it, it's no offense to Justin, but he is not raising something that U.S. attorneys, investigators, agents haven't been complaining about since the first iPhone came out, which is they feel like they deserve the ability to go in through the back door of phones and encrypted technology in order to save all of us from criminals. And, and you know, what's interesting is we're talking about a case you know, just two seconds ago that was done through old fashioned shoe leather investigations and they managed to get two people convicted of trying to shoot up a bar. And and so it's it's an interesting argument to make at a time that there is just untold amounts of government surveillance that already exists that they have access to. I mean, we've been renewing the Patriot Act every year since since 9-11. So, I mean, it's it's not like law enforcement doesn't have tools. They're just mad. I think that they don't get every tool and that these companies are pushing back against them and saying consumers do deserve some privacy. Well, and consumers value it. There's nothing in the Constitution that guarantees investigators access to my phone, but the Constitution does protect me against an unreasonable search. And I guess my question is, do the tech companies have any responsibility here or could they have responsibility? I don't know. I mean, we, we've seen that a lot of tech companies don't care about their responsibility too. I mean, it's, it's a, it's an interesting debate to be had because you know, it, it, on one end we're seeing tech companies do terrible things, ignoring, you know, awful behavior, allowing white supremacy, like anti-Semitism, all of that to flourish. But at the same time, we're also sort of defending them saying, look, you know, the government shouldn't be able to just kick in their door and go in and take people's private information. It'll be interesting to see if Congress passes a law to give investigators backdoor access through the through that encryption. Um, the problem is there will always be another way to do it and another way to thwart investigators. Well, and what's concerning, and I think the, you know, in the people that Eric talked to for his story raise a very good point, which is, is if you build in a weakness to something that is supposed to be secure, people are going to be able to hack it. I mean, there's there's nothing that is 100% secure. And and so, you know, I think, you know, are is is the government going to be held responsible for, you know, creating a, a backdoor and then a massive malware attack on iPhones or, you know, I mean, it's I mean, we're in a really pivotal time, I think, in this country when it comes in, in the world, really, in, in how we how we deal with both our security, our our rights as consumers and and. You know, and also, you know, the rights of private companies to, you know, to have their trade secrets basically and maintain, you know, their own privacy and their and 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 to ensure their customers that that you know, if you use our products, you will be safe with us. And and I think that's important. I think everybody deserves some privacy. And you know, and people say, you know, it, it's a slippery slope to say, well, I already put you know, all your stuff's already out there. And it's like, yeah, but I should have control of it. I should be able to say, you know, when I get to take it back, I should, you know, and, and, you know, and, and opening the door for the government. I mean, it's weird. It's a weird position for, for people who adhere to standards of like private property and, you know, the government shouldn't be treading on me, but then they're perfectly okay with letting the government kick in their back door and say, yeah, we're just going to take what we want. We should have had you write the opposing op-ed. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. No problem. We have Mary Kilpatrick here to talk about the big project we're doing with the end of the year and the end of the not-quite-decade stories. Hi, Mary. Hey, Laura. Hey, Chris. 
Before we get to that project, let's do a quick touch on plastic bags. We've talked in detail on this podcast about the Cuyahoga County plastic bag ban, but you added some perspective to that story by spending time at one shopping center where bags have been banned for a while. So what did you learn? Yeah, I went out to Pinecrest on the east side last Friday, and it was really an informative conversation. Um, A lot of people were really in favor of the plastic bag ban. I even encountered some folks who were visiting family out of town um, here uh, and some folks who were in town for business as well. Um, and they lived in cities where there were already bag restrictions. And their you know, reaction to Cleveland doing this was, it's really no big deal. Um, I talked to one woman, though, who was pretty worried about it. And she was like, if I have a bunch of stuff in my hands and I'm walking out of a store, um, I'm going to be accused of potentially stealing. Um, and she was really, really worried about it. The other thing that she was really against is if there are paper bags. Um, she doesn't like the idea of the cost of those paper bags being passed along to her because paper can be more expensive than plastic bags. She didn't want to pay for something that you know she views as rippable or something that could you know, tear and all suddenly all of her goods are, you know, on the street. So she was really the only person I encountered who was really concerned about it. Um, Overall, people thought it was a great thing. What was what I found interesting about that, and we didn't put it into the article because it wasn't a big enough sample. But the one person that that you talked to that was worried is an African-American. And it and it did raise the question is, you know, we talk a lot around here about implicit bias. And if African-American shoppers believe they will be viewed as shoplifters if they walk out of the store with merchandise they bought, that has to be dealt with. I mean, that, that becomes a problem, but, but it would take a, a bit more research, I think, to figure out if that's widespread or if this was just anecdotal. Yeah, I thought that was noteworthy in Mary's story, too. There is definitely lots to continue to explore in plastic bags. Um, so we all know that mathematically the end of this year is not the end of the decade. That would be next year. But this is the end of the teen years. So at Cleveland.com, we're using this moment to take a look back at uh, over the last 10 years. So Mary, you've been spending quite a lot of time reading all the major stories of the past 10 years. What has struck you? There has been a lot of news in Cleveland <laughs> over the past 10 years. Um, and it's stuff that people are like, really? That was 10 years ago? I think Laura and I were having a discussion about a, a, a terrible murder where a woman was found on the side of the road and Cleveland police mistook her for a deer. Um, that happened in the early 2010s. And Laura was like, really? It felt like it was two years ago. <laughs> and then there were stories. So, that you know, there are the stories that feel like they, they just happened. But, you know, quite honestly, they, it was several years ago. Uh, you know, they're the big ticket stories that everybody already knows about, you know, Tamir Rice, the Republican National Convention, the consent decree in Cleveland. So those stories were, you know, obvious and sort of, you know, first thing on our list. I think the thing that struck me the most is um, how much sometimes we forget about what's happened in the past and how stories that maybe didn't seem very consequential at the time have gained importance and gained sort of traction um, as as time progressed. Um, I think one of the things that struck me um, at the time when you read stories about the Medical Mart opening, how it was heralded as this defining moment for Cleveland where we're going to have this huge medical industry and this hub for medical goods and and I don't know whether or not that's really panned out. Oh, yeah, no. no, the way. no. I, I got to say, there were a bunch of us even then saying, this is bull, that this is this was never going to work. But you're right. All the public officials heralded it. You're breaking down this, this stuff into a bazillion parts. You have a top 10 list for each year of the last 10 years. I think they're starting on Tuesday. Uh, you also have an assortment of the biggest stories of the last 10 years, and you're breaking those down. What are some of the breakdowns you're, you're using? So uh, so the biggest news stories, so these are the stories that you and I know were the biggest news at the time and remain the biggest news today of the decade. Uh, biggest sports stories, obviously. Biggest entertainment stories. Biggest talkers, which is stories that maybe weren't the biggest news of the decade or maybe even the biggest news of that year. But man, they captivated Northeast Ohio when they were happening. So Ebola. Did anybody come down with Ebola in Northeast Ohio? Was it actually that big of a deal? No, but... To the bridal shop that ended up closing, yes. Right, yeah. Right, but, but uh, and then uh, most impactful stories as well. 
To be clear, we are not ranking the number one story for any category. Believe me, it is hard enough to narrow down any list to just 10 stories. I was telling Mary we should include all our alternates that didn't make the cut in a grab bag post at the end so that people can weigh in and say, oh, you should have put that one in. Uh, the only way I'm going to get Superstorm Sandy no, into the no. mix since 2012 was an incredibly newsy year. Um, regardless, I don't think there's any mystery on the number one sports story of the decade. It was the Cavs championship. Um, and yeah, Laura, I, I would agree. I mean, you and I have just slaved over this list and you would be amazed at the news events that didn't make our top 10 just because it, it depends on what year they are. Like yeah. 2012, super newsy 2013, not as much. Yeah. You mentioned a category for most impactful. What are you going for there? Yeah. These are stories that maybe didn't make it into the consciousness of Northeast Ohio, but certainly had an impact on civic leaders and decision makers here in Northeast Ohio. One moment that comes to mind was John Penny, who probably the average Northeast Ohioan doesn't know him or doesn't know about the speech. But last year at the city club, he gave this speech where he said Cleveland was dead last and that stopped civic leaders in their tracks and really started sort of a conversation around, um, you know, uh, what Cleveland can do to improve itself. And I think in some ways led to bigger conversations like the Cleveland rising event, um, last month. So, these lists are somewhat subjective, obviously. No one's going to dispute the Cavs championship being a big story. Others are more debatable. Do we have a plan to have the audience weigh in with stories that we might have left off or that we shouldn't have included? Yeah, my inbox is open, guys. So <laughs> I am looking forward to all of your thoughts and reading them over Christmas break and not responding until the <laughs> first of the year. But but we will have comments on, on these stories. So feel free to leave your thoughts and then we can collect them at the end and do a post. This is fun. Laura, you write the intro piece about why we're doing this and get into why it's really not the end of the decade. But Mary, this is a monumental... This is very big on making sure everyone well, knows. Well, because we should respect math. There was no <laughs> year zero. And Mary, you've done a monumental amount of work on this, and we, we're, we're grateful you did it. And thank you for coming by and giving the preview. Thanks, guys. Here's the discussion I've been waiting for. We have Pete Krause here to talk about the Cannonball Run. Welcome, Pete. Hello. The gist of this story is that a Northeast Ohio guy was part of a team that broke the record for the coast-to-coast -coast individual race called the Cannonball Run. Honestly, I'd never heard of the Cannonball Run, but they drove from New York to L.A. in 27 hours and averaged 103 miles per hour, which is just mind-boggling. So, Pete, how did they do it? Well, they did it... Uh with a lot of preparation, um, they uh, they modified a Mercedes, a high end Mercedes, with um, uh, boost by boosting the engine. They added a, a gas tank to the back so they would have a lot more fuel. So they were able to go 600 miles uh, before refueling. Um, they're both the two guys that did the driving are both experienced drivers, and um, uh, they and they took off early in the night. Uh, uh, early early in the morning, middle of the night, and they finished uh, about 27 hours later, and they had a lot of electronics in the car to keep from getting detected. One, so, one other thing I thought was really cool for their measures where they, they made the car look generic so you couldn't tell it was a Mercedes. Yeah, yeah it was interesting. They took all the little badges or logos off of the car. And the, even like painted the carbon the, the, like, right. trim. The, the carbon trim, which is black, they painted that gray, so it, it, it looked like maybe a Honda or a <laughs> Uh, Jetta, I don't know, but it was it was very nondescript and silver. So so this story just captures the imagination, and anyone who drives on the highways regularly has to be wondering how these guys dealt with those drivers who hang out in the left lane driving the speed limit and backing up traffic. How did they get past those people? Or on Interstate 80, which they were on, there's a lot of parts of that that are two lanes. And what did they do when they got behind a slow-moving yeah. truck in the left lane passing another slow-moving truck? Well, well, first of all, they, they eliminated the problem largely by uh, taking off when they did, one in the morning. So they drove for six hours before daybreak. So they probably didn't have a whole lot of people on the road. But when they would come upon a, a vehicle uh, in the left lane, they would give the, the person space. They wouldn't tailgate. Um, and, if, and if the person moved over, great. If not, then they would bide their time and then they'd pass on the right. 
but they took all, all kinds of precautions to make sure that they didn't draw attention to themselves. They didn't want to irritate anybody. Everybody's got a cell phone. Someone comes blowing by them at 90 miles an hour. It's not hard to call the police and say, be on the lookout for this and that. So they were very, very cautious not to make enemies on the road. And they wanted to stay safe, too, not just get caught. Like, they didn't oh, want sure. to cause a traffic accident. Right. They, did, they didn't want to die. They didn't want to kill anybody. They didn't want to cause an accident. So your story said they added that extra gas tank. I think you said 45 gallons. When they stopped for gas, you, you said there was like a guy who like ran interference. So did they have like two pumps going at a time, like one for I, each tank? I, I don't think they did because I saw a picture actually of the of a pump in the tank and it was just the one okay. pump. But they had, they had like dual um, access points uh, in the tank when, when they showed it to me. But, yeah, what they did is they had a lot of spotters out on the road, and, and they knew exactly what gas stations they wanted to go to, and they wanted to make sure that they didn't, they didn't pull up, and there was a line of six or seven cars that was going to delay them, so they ha would have somebody kind of block the pump so that when the, when the Mercedes came up, they could roll right in there and, and get and their gas. And they chose the stations that didn't have stoplights to get back on. I right. mean, they, they knew what they were doing. Right. Well, they had done, this, they had done the oh, route right. uh, earlier in the year in, a, in another kind of a race called the the uh, the uh, C2C Express, which was more of a, of a race. What they did with the Cannonball Run is like a time trial. It was just them crossing the country as fast as they can. Um, but they knew the route. They knew where the gas stations were. They planned it all out. They had spotters. Uh, Did they race into the bathroom at the gas station? I don't think they. Well, the, the, you know, you're filling up. Think about it. Well, how many how many gallons does your tank have? What? Right. It's going to take 16. a while. It's, yeah, it's going to yeah. take a while. So, uh, plus, I think they they uh, yeah. So they, that's what they did. And, and I joked with them about you know, well, what happens when you get somewhere where they're. You know, and it says, oh yeah, the keys over there yeah. on the wall. <laughs> Just go around the side. You know. Uh, but they went to uh, they they went to like truck stop like places oh, okay. where they had plenty of bathrooms. So they start in New York in the dead of night, and you told me they made it to Cleveland in three hours, and that's usually more than a six hour ride. How long did it take to get to Chicago? And really, how did they not get a speeding ticket? When I I mean I drive on the highways fairly frequently, I always see cops looking for speeders. Yeah. Well, if you extrapolate the three hours that it took them to go from from New York to Cleveland, okay, well, and that's about a six, seven-hour drive normally. So, you know, it's a, they probably got to Chicago in about six hours, the Mississippi River. So so by daybreak, you know, they're probably hitting the Mississippi River, and beyond, and now they're now they're going to be in daylight, right? But they're they're in an area of the country where it's it's a little more wide open. But but how did they avoid the police? Well, they had all kinds of electronics on that on that car. They had police scanners to know. Uh, if anybody had seen them and were, were talking about them, they actually got spotted in, in Iowa, which caused them to slow down. They had uh, radar detectors. They had laser gun detectors, which I guess a laser gun is different than a radar detector in that it shoots a beam at you. And, and I think you can do it from further away. Well, they had a laser diffuser, but it would break that beam up. They had binoculars uh, that, that they could see two miles ahead. They had uh, an infrared um, uh, camera on the top of the car that could that could sense the heat of a of a vehicle on the side of the road or even a deer maybe up ahead that might jump into traffic so they had all kinds of detection going on so your story said people were following oh, oh one other yeah. thing they also had two easy passes to make sure they got through the uh, oh the through, tolls th th through the tolls nice your story said people were following the journey online was there a danger that cops could also follow them I, online and be I, waiting I, I don't think so because I, not many people knew that this they is like were, totally under the, the radar this was under the radar it was just a kind of a I think they told me that maybe fifty people were in on what was happening the people that worked on the car to get it ready those who helped with the research to get the route ready. And then maybe a dozen or so people that, that followed uh, a live streaming of the GPS. Um, uh, uh, but, uh, no, I do not believe the police were. All right, so this. so this escapade has been covered all over the world, really. Uh, you talked to him again this week about all of that attention, and he was a little bit melancholy yeah. about it. He was worried people might try this and get hurt. What's that about? Yeah, yeah. The, 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 and the fellow, Doug Tabbitt, is the guy from Twinsburg. He's an exotic car dealer down there. He's a nice guy. He's 34 years old. Uh, uh, he's always been a car in, in, in enthusiast. And, uh, um, and as I mentioned, they took great precautions to be safe. And apparently the Cannonball Run has always had that 
uh, it's always been kind of a, of a, of a requirement that if you're going to do this, you got to do it right. And uh, originally they thought that, well, just some of their car friends would know what they did because the Cannonball Run is, is it's a clandestine affair, right? It's not, it's really not designed to be, to be publicized, uh, you know, uh, widely, but it was. And, and, and they went along with it. And now he kind of regrets it a little bit because he's worried that people who, who won't take the kind of precautions they did will try this and get in an accident, hurt somebody, hurt themselves. So he's worried about copycats. He's worried about, um, you know, whether or not, um, you know, the, the, the downside, there could be a downside to this. But does he regret doing it? Not at all. Cool. He, so did, yeah. and i got to say, I'm not even a car person in this, this story. No, I'm not either. Fascinating. But. Did they drive back from L.A.? You know, I didn't ask them that, but I. Well, they had to get the car back. They had to get the car. I mean, they could have put it on a trailer, I guess, but I'm sure they. I'm sure they drove. They took it their back. time. They should back. donate it to the Western Reserve uh, Museum where they have all the cars. Well, the car was built in Chicago. Doug's uh, buddy, who uh, his driving buddy, uh, Arnie Toman from Chicago, who's an interesting guy himself, uh, is uh, uh, he he built the car. And by the way, there was a third person in the car, Brad uh, Berkeley Chadwick. Uh, a friend of Doug's who was like a spotter navigator. Cool. Well, thank you so much for writing the story and for coming by to talk about it. My pleasure. Okay, Laura, before we close this down, we have some special episodes of the next two weeks. For next week, we're doing the top 10 stories of 2019, trading on Mary's work. Then we will have the week after that, the best of the decade. Yep, the lists are ready. We're working on them. Unless something happens in the next few days, that gets really big. Are there any surprises, any hints that uh, we should we should throw out there? No, you'll have to wait and see like everybody else. We have a lot of choices, some good news, some bad, all are big. Uh, Mary talked about the, the challenge of putting them together. Did you guys disagree on some of these? Oh, yes. And I disagreed with you on some of them. <laughs> You're the damn storm. <laughs> You're never going to give up on Superstorm Sandy. It was a storm. <laughs> but that's a really fun thing about making these. Um, you get to debate and you get to like weigh two completely different stories. Like, should we talk about who's running for governor or, or you know, gov- running for president or um, Sherwin-Williams? So... They don't have anything to do with each other. But we want to hear from people about their choices, and we'll have a place for them to do that. And I think we'll do a grab bag idea of the stuff that didn't make our cut. So if people need some discussion points for their family holiday gatherings, they can debate our lists. All right. This kicks off Monday with Laura's introductory piece, and then we will have a piece from this every day pretty much through to the beginning of the new year. Uh, Looking forward to it. That does it for our last regular episode of the year. It's been a pleasure doing this with you as the co-host. Likewise. This Week in the CLE is published Thursdays anywhere you find your podcasts. We also have a short bonus episode on Saturdays to talk about the lingering questions left from the week's news. Over the holidays, these bonus episodes will likely look at lingering questions from the news of the past year and the past 10 years, but we'll see. Thank you for listening. 